Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 23. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm telling the history of the people and places within the borders of today's United States, which I now think of as a version of vast early America, a scholarly trend with its own hashtag. More about that some other time. I'm recording this episode on May 27th, 2021, in New Orleans, Louisiana, maybe half a mile from where Luis de Moscoso Alvarado passed with the remnants of the Soto expedition down the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico in July 1543. Indeed, you can sometimes hear the whistles of the ships and the big river from our house. And if you rubberneck at our bathroom window at exactly the right time, you can see the tops of the biggest container ships moving along. Moscoso never gets the credit for being the European discoverer of the site of New Orleans, but he and the other survivors of the Soto expedition were almost certainly the first Europeans to see the future site of the Crescent City. If Ponce de Leon gets credit for Florida, Moscoso, it seems to me, ought to get it for New Orleans, at least if one is super into arguing about credit to conquistadors which I would definitely do with strangers and bars if there were other people to do it with. We are all lonely in some way. Anyway, pardon the digression. You will recall from last time that we have rolled back the clock on our timeline to cover the Coronado Entrada into the American Southwest, which occurred at the same time as the Soto expedition in the Southeast and South. The powers that be in Mexico, Viceroy Mendoza and Bishop Zumarraga, I contended over whether that mission should be fundamentally military and commercial or evangelical. The clergy was ascendant in Seville, so Spain's King Charles had ordered Viceroy Mendoza to support a clerical expedition under Bishop Zumarraga's sponsorship. Zumarraga tapped an old and trustworthy friend, who I perhaps unfairly referred to in that last episode as a drunken friar. We'll get to that the brother Marcos de Niza, to lead a mission of conversion and reconnaissance. His guide was to be the language-savvy healer of the Indians, Esteban, one of the four Narvaez survivors. Esteban had long been the slave of Durantes, so his name in many of the old documents is Esteban Durantes, but he may have in fact been freed rather than sold in advance of this mission. In that regard, I should have made the point last week, but did not, that Esteban's behavior on this mission could be invoked to support either side of the debate about Esteban's manumission. Manumission being heavy vocab for the freeing of a slave. The first part of this episode will be about how very difficult it is to understand the motives of people who do important crossroads things in history and how easy it is to fall in the trap of believing that somebody is a liar or otherwise a bad person. Then we'll get back on the trail. We are now in late 1539, almost exactly 482 years ago as I write this. Friar Marcos is alone with a bunch of Indios Amigos, literally friendly Indians who had not been enslaved, somewhere in Arizona, possibly in the Salt River Valley east of modern Phoenix. He has just learned that his guide and advance man, Esteban, has died rather gruesomely, along with a bunch of his Indian escorts at the hands of the angry chief of Cibola, the city 
definitely air quotes around that, purported to be the gateway to the seven cities of gold. By his own somewhat suspect account, Frey Marcos has a decision to make. Does he soldier on to lay eyes on Cibola himself, knowing that if he dies, his mission will have been a complete failure, insofar as there will be no European to report on the territory? Or does he head back to Culiacan on the west coast of Mexico, where Coronado is waiting for him, and base his report on the tales told by Indians, either at Esteban's direction or otherwise? We'll get back to the good friar's decision shortly. As events would unfold, Marcos would bring back stories of Cibola that would be the confirming point of due diligence necessary for Mendoza and Coronado to launch their entrada in search of the seven cities of gold. On the important points, those involving gold, silver, and big cities, almost everything Marcos would report turned out not to be true. We know this because Coronado and his men would so completely lose faith in Marcos that they would send him home in the middle of their expedition. And of course, there were never any such cities north of the Rio Grande. Now, there is a huge amount of controversy around the question of the exaggerations or rank dishonesty of Brother Marcos. Over the centuries, from Coronado to the Spanish chroniclers and eventually modern scholars, the majority position is that Marcos was so unbelievably wrong on so many important points that he simply must have been intentionally dishonest. There are, however, a few reasons that might lead one to believe that Marcos was gullible rather than deceptive. First, Bishop Zumaraga remained a good friend to Fray Marcos until his death years later. This suggests, at a minimum, that whatever Marcos's sins may have been, they were forgivable, which makes a certain sense to me. After the other friar turned back because he was sick, and Esteban jumped ahead, Marcos was absolutely alone, but for Indians with whom he could only communicate with great difficulty, for months in the wilderness, walking more than 20 miles a day into a dangerous and unknown land. That must have been stressful, even for a new world toughened friar, and I'm sure Marcos was a tough bird. Perhaps I am wrong, but I have the general idea that if I needed an uncomplaining and tough-as-nails companion on a walkabout through dangerous territory, a medieval friar would be a solid choice. But even so, Marcos's journey was lonely and hard by every measure. Second, as attentive listeners picked up in the last episode, Marcos was but one link in a dodgy communication chain— He'd been drawn forward by messages from Esteban, who after Sonora in northern Mexico always stayed a few days in March ahead of Marcos. He and Marcos had devised a system of symbolic communication in which Esteban would dispatch Indians with Christian crosses, indicating the extent of his discoveries by the size of the cross. Esteban sent back several huge man-sized crosses, which Marcos says meant that Esteban had found civilizations bigger and richer than New Spain. There were also Indians who showed up from time to time with stories that described places that sounded like seven cities of gold. According to Marcos's account, some of these Indians were sent by Esteban, but some just randomly popped in. Obviously, Esteban, 
might have suborned the Indians to perjure themselves, as it were, including the Indians who claimed they were just popping in. Alternatively, the Indians may have believed the stories they were telling, or through poor translation and sign language were understood to be talking bigger than they meant to do. Or maybe the Indians were baiting the Spanish with dreams of gold, as they had done so many times already in the short history of the Americans, and as would happen very specifically as the subsequent Coronado and Trotta unfolded. It is also possible that Fray Marcos was a big talker with some wine in him. Robert Goodwin, in his speculative and favorable biography of Esteban, Crossing the Continent, dug through the subsequent correspondence between Fray Marcos and his bishop, in which the friar asks his boss to send him wine. Goodwin comes away from that exchange with the idea that Marcos was something of a boozer, and maybe he was. But if I were stuck in a monastery in New Spain in the 1540s and there was no total wines within schlepping distance, I would definitely ask my boss for some wine the next time I scribbled out a letter with my quill pen on some parchment. It would be the least he could do, and should do. Anyway, here's Goodwin's take, which may be true and uncharitable at the same time. Before his alcoholic retirement, Marcos Deniza had lied about what he saw during his expedition to the Seven Cities. In 1539, he'd given wildly exaggerated reports about the North, elaborating on his story for almost any audience, eulogizing his promised land from the pulpit and in the barber shops, talking of a place where the women wore jewelry of precious metals and the men wore belts of gold. Many were willing to open their wallets. For the price of a few drinks, they could cock their eager ears and listen to the latest installment of his adventures. Again with the stories in taverns. You'd think these people would learn to be a little less credulous. But then again... I know what gold does to men's souls. Back to Goodwin. In 1539, soon after Marcus's return, a Spanish monk in Mexico had written glowingly to the prior of a monastery in Spain that the place discovered by Marcos was heavily populated and had a well-ordered society. There were walled cities with great houses. The people wore silken clothes and shoes. I will not write about the great wealth of the place, for it is so rich that it will seem incredible to you, the Mexican monk reported to his superior. But then he wrote about it anyway. The temples are covered in precious stones. I think Marcos said they were emeralds and the hinterland is home to elephants and camels. Historians being historians, they have the tendency to take every little scrap of evidence that has survived these almost 500 years and infuse it with great significance, maybe too much significance. It was fashionable at one point to doubt Marcos, not because of the things he said to get free drinks, come on, man, but because of the things he actually wrote in official reports. Most of the Golden City stuff was positioned as hearsay from Esteban and Indians, which erected a defensive sorts if one wanted to cut him a break. He did, however, make claims about places he had traveled, and for various arcane reasons, discrepancies between Marcos's report and reality have been the main basis for the charge that he was actually lying. The less numerous defenders of Marcos do the same, but in reverse. 
There is a 70-page defense of Fray Marcos written in 1947 by one George Dre Undriner of the Pontifical College of Josephinim in Worthington, Ohio. Undriner parses all of the critics of Marcos and finds them wanting in one way or another, including in their calculation of distances he could or could not have traveled and so forth. In Undriner's reading, everything Marcos wrote could well have been true, and maybe he is right. Undriner likes the friar, so the paper reads a bit like a modern political partisan defending something idiotic his own side said, parsing each word and then 400-year-old documents to show that the things Marcos said or wrote down were technically correct, even if they left the wrong impression. For my part, I do not know whether Marcos was an invidious and calculating liar Motive seems a little unclear, or just a gullible tavern raconteur. It does not actually matter, notwithstanding the passionate scholarship on the question, for in the end, the massive Coronado expedition would head north on the basis of a catastrophic intelligence failure, whatever its origin. Fortunately, that's something that never happens anymore. Back to Marcus's decision. He and his Indian amigos have just heard of Esteban's fate. According to Marcos, he retired to prey on the matter. That part is almost certainly true. And now we'll pick up Undriner's sympathetic account. When he returned from praying, he tells us, he found one of the Indians, whom he brought from Mexico, weeping. This Indian informed the friar that these Indians had agreed to kill him because they said their relatives had died because of him and Esteban. Again, the friar distributed among them what he had left of the cloth and the articles of barter to placate them. He told them to consider if they killed him that they would not do him any harm because he would die a Christian and would go to heaven and that those who killed him would suffer for it because the Christians would come in search of him and, against his will, would kill them all. With these and many other words, they were appeased somewhat, although they still made great show of feeling for the people killed. My guess is that Fray Marcos believed every word when he said it, and when he wrote it all down in his report, and that the Indians were at least worried that he might be right. Their acquiescence in the moment certainly reflected a justified fear of Spanish retribution, but perhaps also the universal appeal of Pascal's wager, which is worth Googling if you don't know it. The Indians now at least somewhat mollified, Marcos recruited two of the, quote, chiefs to take him to see the first town of Cibola, which he says he saw from the top of a nearby hill. Marcos reported that it presented a very beautiful appearance of a town with stone houses, flat roofs, and in Marco's estimation, a population bigger than Mexico City's at the time. Or maybe it ain't so. This is the point that sticks most in the craw of the Marcos haters. Did he ever actually make that last journey to see Cibola? If so, how could he have so overstated its grandeur? Did he just see from a distance what he thought he would see? If not, did he just summarize the testimony of Indians and say that he had seen it himself? Again, it hardly matters. Bottom line, intelligence failure. Marcos at this point marches back to New Spain looking to reconnect with Coronado, who was well south of Culiacan putting down restive Indians and mollifying jittery settlers. 
The two eventually do reconnect and together arrive at Mexico City on September 2nd, 1539. The friar delivered his report and made the rounds telling his tale in the taverns and salons. Viceroy Mendoza, being nobody's fool, was encouraged by the good news, such as it was, but apparently not entirely persuaded. The Viceroy rounded up one Melchior Diaz, formerly one of Nuno de Guzman's captains, and asked him to take 15 men on horses and the usual Indios Amigos to revisit the route Marcos had taken to Cibola and give his take on the friar's report. On November 17, 1539, Diaz departed Culiacan and marched north following the path described by Marcos. Diaz would eventually make it to Arizona and visit some of the Pueblos and would hear confirmation of Esteban's death and of a threat from a messenger from Cibola, quote, that if the Indians of the region did not dare kill the Spaniards, they were to send the messenger to tell the people of Cibola, because they would come to do it right. He also met a captive Indian who had been a member of Esteban's party. The Spaniards had not adequately prepared for the winter, however, and began to get sick. Some of the Indios Amigos from the south died. Rather than facing both bitter cold and the hostile Indians of Cibola, Diaz turned his men around and headed back to New Spain. On the way, he wrote a much more realistic assessment of the situation in the American Southwest. Now we'll pick up the narrative of Professor Stan Hoig from his book, Came on Horses. Though Diaz and his party would meet an advancing expedition under Coronado early in the spring of 1540, his report on his trip did not reach the Viceroy until March 20th, when Zeldivar and three other horsemen delivered it to him at Colima, which is roughly 450 miles south of Culiacan. By then, Diaz's observations were virtually moot. Even as he and his men were riding hundreds of miles and fighting bitter cold during the fall and winter of 1539-1540, Mendoza had made up his mind to plunge ahead with an elaborate expedition of conquest to Cibola. Coronado was to be its captain general. Mendoza's decision to proceed had been influenced by a rising clamor among the people of Mexico City, to go in search of Cibola's wealth. Close quote. This, I would think, must have annoyed Diaz no end. So Coronado and Mendoza spent the winter of 1539-40 organizing a huge expedition into the American Southwest. At the same time, Soto's Entrada was wintering in what is now downtown Tallahassee. By comparison, the Coronado Entrada would in its total numbers be much larger and better provisioned, and it would also start out at least under an entirely different relationship with the Indians. Like Soto's, the Coronado expedition was privately financed. Mendoza and Coronado both put a good part of their fortunes in, and many of the Spanish who enlisted paid their own way in the hope of getting a share of the spoils. The Spanish component of Coronado's army consisted of 270 mounted men with the usual cavalry weapons and another 70 infantrymen, some with muskets and arquebuses. Many of these men were relatively green, young Hidalgos who had been making trouble in Mexico City with not nearly enough to do, and were now off on the adventure of their lifetime. From reading the various descriptions of these men, I had two thoughts. First, they were basically the frat boys of their era. 
Second, the serious people in Mexico City were probably delighted that so many of them left town with Coronado. Those who made it back from such a trip would be serious men themselves. On top of these, there were allied Indian warriors, described in various documents as numbering at least 900 and perhaps as many as 2,000. These were free Indians, and their purpose was to fight, if necessary, or by their presence, prevent fighting. Not only was their arrangement, under orders from Viceroy Mendoza, entirely different than that of the Indians pressed into baggage service by Soto at the same time across the Gulf of Mexico, but Coronado issued a proclamation that never would have occurred to Soto. Per Professor Hoig, there was to be no licentiousness, blasphemy, living in concubinage, or other vices such as excessive gambling on the expedition. It was announced publicly that no one would be permitted to take any Indian slaves, male or female, in Tierra Nueva, under pain of certain penalties. Finally, the army had more than a thousand horses and herds of cattle, sheep, and pigs to provide food and the hoof. In addition to the free Indian warriors, there was a large number of black slaves and Indian shepherds and cowards to handle the livestock and perform tasks around camp. However, Coronado did not cut the green Spanish nobles any slack. Hoig again. Because Mendoza had removed the Indians from rendering many of the manual services they normally performed, the coddled sons of Spanish families were forced to serve themselves. Even those who had personal slaves were required to tend their own horses, pack their own baggage, bake their own bread make their own camp arrangements, and perform many of the other chores of simple survival on the trail. They would so learn as well that they had entered a harsh, primitive land where many dangers lurked. Gradually, the rough life of the trail would harden them as men and make them better soldiers. Coronado, who was barely 30 himself, understood how to take a bunch of armed frat boys and make them obey him. This would be very important later in the expedition, when disappointment heaped on disappointment would make a lot of them doubt their captain general. And yet they still obeyed and even loved him. In February and March 1540, the expedition moved from central Mexico to Culiacan, where it would spend three weeks or so topping off supplies and otherwise preparing to leave Spanish civilization. On April 22, 1540, Coronado, with Friar Marcos supposedly pointing the way, led a vanguard of 75 horsemen north from Culiacan and into Indian country. The rest of the army, with a bulk of the baggage and livestock, was to follow along in due course. Now, as with the Soto expedition, historians and scholars in the Allied disciplines have invested an enormous amount of effort trying and failing to nail down the exact itinerary of the Colorado Entrada, which was to endure about two and a half years from its jumping-off point. There are competing narratives in other contemporary documents that talk of leagues marched in various directions with loose descriptions, topographical features, and Indian settlements that are or are not verifiable. There has even been debate over whether Culiacan was actually on the site of modern Culiacan or somewhere else. These variations show up in the many different maps of the Coronado and Trata's journey available on the internet and in the academic literature. 
Also, as with Soto, the academic to and fro has been intense. Some of the scholars from the first half of the 20th century essentially write, Jane, you ignorant slut. Kids, ask your parents about that one in presumably serious journals. Writing in 1897, F.S. Dellenbaugh, differing with the majority of his fellow archaeologists of the location of Cibola, declares that, quote, Without an unimpeachable location for this first group of towns, early American history is defective. That seems to me to overstate things a bit. Anyway, my lack of interest in the ambiguities around Coronado's route would no doubt disappoint the giants of the Academy if they gave me any thought. Sorry, I find myself falling asleep reading it myself, and I neither want to write it nor inflict it on you, my gentle listeners. I'm therefore going to do as I did with Soto, finish this episode by running through a timeline and a general description of the expedition's course, and then tell you some of the stories that interest me most or ripple down the years most profoundly. On May 9th, 1540, two and a half weeks after Coronado, Brother Marcos, and his vanguard on horseback left Culiacan for the north, the bulk of the army followed along. The journey was far rougher, and the trail much more rugged than Marcos had reported. The army's pigs could not cross the mountains and had to turn back. There would be no pulled pork tacos on this expedition. This would be Marcos' first strike. At roughly the same time, Hernando de Alarcón would leave Acapulco to sail up the Gulf of California to resupply and otherwise cooperate with Coronado. If you listen to the last episode, you will perhaps remember that Alarcón sailed up the Colorado River some distance, inconceivable today, thanks to Los Angeles and Las Vegas, and encountered Indians who independently confirmed a Stebbins' ugly finale. Alarcón and Coronado would never connect, mostly because Brother Marcos had grossly underestimated the distance between where he had been and the Gulf of California. Strike two. In early to mid-June 1540, still ahead of the main army, Coronado and his riders entered Arizona. By early July, Marcos had led them to the towns of Cibola, and Coronado captured the Pueblo of Huica, which was the first city that Marcos supposedly had seen from the top of a nearby hill. While a decent enough town, Hawika was so much less impressive than Marcos had described, even in his written report, that the men lost all faith in him. Strike three. Within a month, Coronado dispatched a messenger back to the main army, still in northern Mexico, and sent Marcos along. The first European to see Arizona and New Mexico had been dismissed ignominiously and made his way back to New Spain. Embarrassing as this must have been, it may well have been for his own safety. By late 1540, Coronado had dispatched Lopez de Cardenas and some horsemen to the northwest, and at some point in the next couple of months, they would become the first Europeans to see the Grand Canyon. Also in late 1540, Alarcón enters the mouth of the Colorado and sails upstream as far as it was navigable. In the fall of 1540, the army catches up with Coronado at Tigu, a well-watered pueblo in western New Mexico, and they all settle down for the winter. Coronado's men meet an Indian who looked like he came from the Near East, so they nickname him the Turk, 
The only name we have for him, he tells the story of Quivera, a city of gold off to the northeast across a vast desert of grass with many cows. On April 23, 1541, Asoto is fighting his way across northern Mississippi toward the eponymous river. Coronado follows the Turks' direction and marches his entire army east from Tigu to cross the Buffalo Plains to Quivera. Within a month, it became clear that West Texas did not have enough food or water to support the vast army, so he sends it back to Tigu. Coronado with the Turk, another Indian guide and 30 horsemen, ride north and east through Oklahoma and into eastern Kansas. They reach Quivera by August 1541. It is a nothing burger, which you already knew since I told you it was in eastern Kansas. Bit of a spoiler, this does not go well for the Turk. After a few weeks exploring the area just in case, the Coronado Vanguard returns to Tigu, New Mexico, and gets there late in the year. The rough draft plan is to resume the search to the north come spring, which some scholars say would have taken him to the Mississippi River or the Great Lakes. However, in December 1541, Coronado fumbles his lance in a bit of manly fun, and injures himself rather ominously, discretion being the better part of valor, and Coronado having a rich and apparently beautiful wife pining away back in New Spain. After he recovers enough to travel, he turns the army around and heads back south. This is a good place to stop. Next time, we will look at a bunch of the interesting things that happened along the way, which I hope you will enjoy as much as I did. After that... We will look at the first Spanish exploration of the California coast and then swing back to the East Coast for a series of very rough moments in South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida. The body counts will pick up considerably. Thank you again for listening. Please follow us on our Facebook page, The History of the Americans podcast. And if you listen on Apple, consider a five-star rating and a glowing review. As usual, please send me points of correction, pats on the back, and cranky opinions to my email address, thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com.